Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Colonial virus is why I can't live. That thing gotta go. You gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matamela Odom. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. In the news last week, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was released from jail where he was being held on murder charges after killing two people who were protesting the Kenosha, Wisconsin police shooting of Jacob Blake, an unarmed African man. Rittenhouse's $2 million bond was raised through a crowdfunding effort that drew popular support from white people around the U.S., including from the CEO of the MyPillow company. Rittenhouse is associated with and influenced by armed white nationalist groups who are making a lot of noise around the country these days, threatening and carrying out violence against African, Mexican, and indigenous people and those who stand with us. These actions are taking place in the context of the polarization between overt white nationalist groups represented and egged on by Trump versus the growing resistance to state violence led by the African working class, with some support from white progressives following the murder of George Floyd. Today on the People's War Radio Show, we'll be talking about the roots of white nationalist violence whether from citizens or the state, and how it can be stopped. With us is Penny Hess, author of the book Overturning the Culture of Violence and the chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, an organization formed by the African People's Socialist Party to build support and reparations from the white community for the African freedom struggle. Welcome, Penny Hess. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really an honor to be on your amazing People's War program. So looking forward to this discussion. Oh, thank you. Penny, during his failed presidential bid, when asked to denounce white nationalism among his supporters, we heard Donald J. Trump tell the Proud Boys to, quote, stand back and stand by, unquote. We see these white people like the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Movement, the Tea Party, and others arming themselves to fight a war against the African community. And then we see actions of the police departments and sheriffs across the U.S. carrying out terrorist violence against African people. Who are the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo Movement? What do they stand for? And do they have a lot of support in the general white population? Well, yes, I think that's a really good question, Matsumela. And I think that, first of all, I just really want to acknowledge that I am the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, which is the organization of white people that was formed by the African People's Socialist Party, led by Chairman Omalia Shatella in 1976. And 
So my understandings of the world situation, of course, come from his leadership and the analysis of the African People's Socialist Party. Chairman O'Malley has been putting out so much incredible information in this period. So that's been very helpful. But I think that, um, you know, the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo movement are, first of all, not unusual. I mean, we can look back in history and see a uh, unbroken line of these kinds of, of organizations of white vigilantes upholding armed white power to the very beginning of, of the U.S. And, you know, what we see now, you know, there was, the, as you said, the Tea Party before that, there was the bombing of the Oklahoma City courthouse. There was, you know, we can just, there were the lynchings. There were, you know, white people acting as the police throughout history. So I think that this is part and parcel of what the United States stands for. And, you know, of course, we would have to say, as Chairman O'Malley Chatella tells us, that the U.S. was born on, and capitalism itself were born on the assault on Africa by Europe, on the turning of African human beings into commodities, items for sale, and built on the stolen labor of African people on land stolen by the general and united with by the general population of, of white people stolen from the indigenous people and genocide committed against them. So this is the birth of the U.S. So when we see the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo movement, we're, we're seeing something that's been well established for centuries inside the U.S. and, and around the world. Thanks for that, Penny, because Chairman O'Malley Yeshitella notes that electoral politics is merely a nonviolent contest between two sectors of the bourgeois white ruling class. And one thing that I've noticed in my analysis of history is that these white nationalist groups, such as the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Movement, the Tea Party, or you know the Klan and groups like that emerge at times of disunification of that white ruling class. But in other times, uh, when they're unified, that's when we see the state as the dominant purveyor of the violence. But what do you think about that? Well, I think that, first of all, as Chairman Omali Shatella says, this country has colonialism inside it. And that African people and indigenous people, as the chairman very clearly puts out, are colonized. The struggle is not against racism. The ideas in white people's heads, it is, you know, the, the attacks and the conditions and the violence facing the African community is, is um, baked into the state, so to speak, because it is a colonial state. And when the police are carrying out the violence against African people, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And I, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's very clear and, and clearly plays out in the U.S. all the time. And so that you have a colonial situation that's always there. And I and in terms of the um, the whole thing, I'm not sure if that I don't you know I don't know I'm you might be right uh, that that happens more in certain times when um, I guess you're saying when there's disunity among the ruling class, but I would say that that 
Trump, Donald Trump has one way of maintaining colonial violence, and that's overt um, participation by white people in the colonial state, whereas Biden has another way of colonial violence that is incredibly intense because, because Biden is the author of the crime bill that was responsible for 100,000 new police coming in. It was responsible for a federal level of the three strikes or outlaws, and it intensified the death penalty and, not, and many other aspects of the mass incarceration and the, um, you know, and the, and the two realities in this country around the state, the, the courts, the, the police, um, and, and incarceration and, and the, you know, police murders uh, that happens far more in the African community against the African community than it does in the white community. So Biden intensified all that. And we can see some of the hideous murders, um, police murders during the Obama administration, which he took no stand, never, never took a stand against that and never took a stand for reparations to African people. So, you know, both sides have this violence and, and it seems to me that this violence goes on every single day. Oh, thank you for that. We know that it was the large majority African cities that defeated Trump in the election. It's been reported that the majority of white people did vote for Trump in support of his unapologetic hostility towards African and other colonized people. What's the basis of this support? Well, I think the basis of the support for Trump is a desire by many sectors of white people. And in fact, the majority, as said here, 57% of the white population voted for Trump in this election. And that's actually more than in 2016. This is a move to return to a time when white people and the state were one and the same. And, and by that, I mean what Chairman O'Malley Ishtala has laid out, that what he calls the white people's state. So if we look back at history, we can, we can note certain things. For example, for one thing I just read recently, that the majority, 80% of the genocide, the actual murders, um, and slaughter of the indigenous people were carried out by white civilians, not the cavalry, not the uh, U.S. government, although, of course, that played a major role in, and committed many atrocities, and it was part of the genocidal policy of the U.S. government. Well, white people carried it out. In fact, not only California, but many other states paid white people up to $100 for every scalp of an indigenous person that they brought in to, to the state. So it was state-sponsored genocide that, that happened, and white people were deputized. And, you know, Matamela, if we look at the fact that for over, uh, well, first of all, during the enslavement of African people, all white people had the power of life and death over African people, not just the owners of enslaved Africans, not just the slave owner, but also any white person could. And there's a, a book called They Were Her Property that talks about white women's role in the enslavement as slave mistresses or, you know, whatever you would call that. 
and how if these you know the 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 local government found out that that there was something that an enslaved African did that required beating and the owners didn't do that, the state and actually they hired people and people there were white people that had jobs that would come in and and beat the Africans, you know, torture the African people and charge the slave owners for that. You know, and then we can look at the fact that hundred years of, of what's called lynchings, this terror against African people from the actual burning of African human beings to actual hanging people from trees to burning down Tulsa and Rosewood and all of these things. No white person, no white person was ever brought to trial, convicted, anything for that. In fact, the first time an anti-lynch law passed the Congress and the House was this year, 2020. And of course, it's not been signed into law by Trump. But the fact is, white people, you know, we wonder why. Well, why do all And these- interesting, yeah. I've seen anti-lynching laws used against Africans protesting Exactly. White, of white, course. White, white nationalist violence. So exactly. And so I would uh, venture to suggest that the anti-lynching laws had been used even more against Africans. And that's one of the things that yeah. really stand that really stands out about that is mm-hmm. about that whole history of and cultural violence that you uh, talk about in your book is that when you read the general textbook histories about the lynchings it they talk about the Ku Klux Klan then they talk about the lynchings but then they show these pictures hundreds if not thousands of these pictures and no one mm-hmm. ever has on no one ever has on hoods That's or right, burn, right? Th- th- these are citizens they don't have on hoods they got on their best their sunday best clothes That's you know right. for for these events that's right. And and also that white women played a humongous role in this, played a very much leading role in this. If we look at Tulsa, which we are getting ready to see the, the 100th anniversary of that in 2021, two important things about that. One is that just like the case of, of Emmett Till and many of what's called the lynchings, uh, a white woman instigated it by just saying that an African man looked at her. That's all they had to say. And that that happened in Tulsa. A white woman instigated that. And that incredible attack that had the first aerial bombing on an urban area of, of the United States in history that was later, of course, you know, 75 years later, uh, used against the Move family in Philadelphia and, and in many other situations, that this was, you know, this was, quote, pioneered in Tulsa. Also an important thing about Tulsa is that the sheriff, when this happened, uh, the sheriff deputized 500 white people and told them that they could do anything that they wanted to the African community. And I think that the, he didn't really need to do that because they were going to do it anyway, and nothing would have happened to them anyway. And nobody was ever charged. This was state-sanctioned. And, you know, when you look at, let's just say Tulsa, because there's so many, Tulsa as a city, I think, is the African community is forcing it to deal with this reality 
and to pay reparations. And I know that they're ex- exhuming um, these mass graves now and finding how many bodies were in that. But Matsumela, if you also look at the rea- reality that Tulsa was one of the most prosperous self-determination economic development centers in the country at that time. And that they had what was called the Black Wall Street. And also African people owned oil wells. They owned oil wells. They, they, had, they had their own stock market, brokerage firms, banks. There were African people who lived in mansions, but they also had a sense from the books that I've read about it a sense of taking care of the entire community and uplifting the entire community, especially with programs not only for jobs, but for widows and and orphans and, you know, made sure that all African children, you know, it was a beautiful place that all African children were taken care of, that everybody was. So it was called the Greenwood neighborhood. So when you look at that reality, white people were very clearly deputized by the state. But for lynchings, they weren't deputized. And as you said, tens of thousands of people would come to those tens of thousands of white people, and nobody was ever charged. So the the sheriff didn't need to deputize. All they need to do was sit back and watch white people do that. So the state in this country and white people are one and the same. And the only thing that changed that that the force that to be a little bit different was the African Revolution of the 1960s, because even in, in the 1960s, white people weren't charged. I mean, the woman who uh, signaled, you know, and provoked the brutal murder of Emmett Till lived to tell the story that, oh, I was just, I lied about that. I mean, she just wrote that in the last few years and she, you know, whatever. She's, nothing ever happened to her. So even in the early 60s, white people could still have the power of life and death over Africans, but it was the African Revolution of the 60s that forced the U.S. government to keep all violence, or most of the violence, against Africans within the auspices of the state power, the colonial state, you know, if you see that. And I think that what we see with these white groups coming up now are wanting to go back to the time of when white people could overtly have the power of life and to you know kill an African person, commit violence, steal their property, and do whatever else they wanted with impunity. They want to go back to that time openly. Yeah, thanks for that because that really does deepen the history of what people call carrying or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and it, yeah. It, it really it really does. This week, many will be celebrating Thanksgiving a celebration of settler colonialism in the U.S., one thing that I've found which really reveals the white nationalism Mm -hmm. of what I call the anti-racism hustle pushed by many of these prominent speakers and academics is their obsession with what's called Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion in the anti-racism hustle is supposed to be some moment in which there was African and and white North American solidarity, but it basically centers around raids against the indigenous population. So, just briefly, you know, could I you know tell that. Me, um, could you say what that? I'm not familiar with that. Could you oh, say oh, what it oh. is? Yes, 1676 in Virginia, there was a guy named Nathaniel Bacon. 
you hear Tim Wise mm-hmm. talk about it a lot, and 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 it, this was a moment in which you know white indentured servants were supposed to be promised these freedom dues. They didn't get their freedom dues. Uh, there was a colonial uh, aristocracy or colonial bourgeois class uh, who was oppressing uh, people and things like that. Um, uh, so you had the white indentured servants, but you also had the enslaved African people and some Africans that some historians might classify as indentured servants. But I've really pushed back against that sort of uh, fiction in my own work. You know, it's like many of these authors, they talk about this period as if, you know, slavery was not overdetermined or that slavery hasn't taken different functions. They'll say things like, oh, they were indentured servants because some got free and stuff like that. When actually the slave owning class in the U.S. were just too cheap, right? They didn't want to pay the high prices of of enslaved Africans. So so what happens is in this rebellion, uh, Nathaniel Bacon, who was kind of like a white middle class guy, led the, you know, mobilized white indentured servants and even Africans um, in resistance against the colonial state. But Bacon was middle class, uh, sort of white guy fighting against the. the, the it's sort the, of like John Brown, um, John John Brown's rebellion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah, right, right. It was sort of like more of like more of that, that free state nonsense versus versus. But 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 what I've noticed is that Tim Wise and those people have really. Um, uh, use this as the example of like before there was racial consciousness, there was class solidarity between blacks and whites and stuff like that. And you know, it's supposed to be this glorious period, but 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 it clearly wasn't as such. No, it wasn't. I, I'm reading um, a book called The Broken Heart of America, and it's about St. Louis and St. Louis's history, which is wow, everything that was <laughs> was done in uh you know, against African and indigenous people by this, both the state and the regular white people acting as the state was coordinated out of here, out of the city. So when we saw what happened to Michael Brown or, you know, why it's so significant that there's a black power blueprint on the North side, you know, created by the Uhuru movement, we can see just the what what this history is, and I, I really recommend that book. I, and but one of the things that he's trying to do in it is constantly say that there were times when there was unity between Africans and white people, white poor white people, and that is just simply not true. It is not true because in every you know he talks about one strike that took place in East St. Louis for like six days. But East St. Louis is where white people just attacked in, in, in 1917, one of the worst assaults, worse than Tulsa, just a brutal assault on African right. people in East St. Louis, which is on, in Illinois, right across the river. And it still hasn't recovered. And no, it even, hasn't. And, no, and, it and seven years before that, you had... Uh, white assaults on Africans in East St. Louis. They poured in from St. Louis all the way over to East St. Louis as That's well, right. just just to murder people because Jack Johnson just won a boxing match. Just, just because just because Jack Johnson won a boxing match, they they yes, murdered. Yes, yes, that's right. So. That's right. I read about it. and the, and that you know any time that there's something that Chairman O'Malley Chatella calls opportunism, and opportunism and white people are the same thing. And of course, opportunism is basically selling out the interest 
of the revolution, or certainly in this case of the African working class, or even the African community, to get my own interests, to get our own interests as white people. This book, The Broken Heart of America by Walter Johnson, it even cites the uh, something written by an African who in the 1920s and 30s was one of the leaders of the Communist Party, which is a white organization, and, and cites the fact that they, oh, they just used the African community to do what they wanted because the colonial question is the key question. And correct, that's how correct. the chairman is so clear that the class question is in the colonial question. So white people have never, never, never stood in, in solidarity with African people in, in um, labor and the job or anything, but they've used African people to get what they wanted. Which is and, exactly what Garvey said. Garvey, yeah, in, in one right. of my favorite quotes, said, "So the people who yesterday were were killing us when we wanted jobs, now they want us to join the organizations." And I love the way Garvey put it. He says, mm-hmm. "He says so that when the bosses start firing people for being communists and socialists, they they fire the black people first. Exactly. Uh, so. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Penny Hess. Penny, the violent repression and occupation of African communities across the U.S. is seen today mostly in the form of the police. In this year alone, we all know the names of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, but there are hundreds whose names we don't know. In Chicago, 25-year-old Tyree Davis in Jacksonville, Florida, 17-year-old Kwame Jones, in Sparks, Nevada, 18-year-old Micaiah Lee, in Philadelphia, 47-year-old Claude Washington Fane III, in Birmingham, Alabama, 43-year-old Kanisha Nicole Fuller. CBS News reported that over 164 African people were killed by police in the first eight months of 2020 alone. In your book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, you trace the history of violence carried out against African and indigenous people in the U.S., not only by official state military or police forces, but by regular citizens, as you were just talking about. Can you give us some of those examples? For example, Tulsa, Rosewood, Boston, and other things that you were talking about? Yes, I think that the history of white people is a history of violence, a history of violence that is so unspeakable that when I was writing the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, based on the chairman, Omali Ishtetela, and the African People's Socialist Party's political theory of African internationalism, I was stunned. And, and I wrote this a while ago. Um, almost 20 years ago, when nothing compared to what is available now was available, but there were still enough books to make the point, you know, that this history, that white, when you put all this together, what we have done. And I think that it's, it's really, I do want to say something about that. And I also want to say that when white people came to this country poor, very poor from Europe, many, the majority of, of us, um, 
came from Italy, came from Germany, Ireland, um, Jewish people, you know, Eastern Europe, Poland, all the various waves of immigration into the U.S. And a lot of times people came with, you know, the clothes on their back and nothing else, like with nothing. And white people were very, very clear that their unity was with their own ruling class, not with African people. And there's a, a chapter in W.E.B. Du Bois' book, uh, Black Reconstruction in America, that's called The White Worker. And it's really interesting because he makes a point there that at the time of the Civil War, there were 5 million white people in the South who were dirt poor. And he gives quotes from different people who were observing that, who said that, um, you know, these white people didn't have clothes. They didn't, they, you know, maybe had a little shack with a dirt floor and um, no food and not enough to eat and, you know, were really suffering. But they never stood in solidarity with the struggle of African people, even against the chattel slavery um, you know, situation inside the U.S. Never, they were incredibly hostile to that, and and um, W. B. Du Bois notes that. You know, he's saying that that they they never recognized. You know, he didn't even say that it was their own true interest would be in solidarity. He's just saying that they were hostile, and he can't analyze that. But Chairman O'Malley Chatella can analyze that because all white people, as he has said sit on the pedestal of the oppression of, of African and indigenous people and the colonized people of the earth and that there is colonialism in this country. And so that the poorest among us as white people, the poorest, most downtrodden, most left out, most, you know, just everything, um, will stand with the interest of a Donald Trump rather than African people because they're working to be white. And that is, that is really the chairman that has made that clear, that gave that clarity. When you look at it, you go, yeah, that's true. And, you know, you look at the fact that there were white people who came to the United States after the 1848 near revolutions in Europe in which Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels issued the Communist Manifesto, which said workers of the world unite, but which never mentioned the enslavement of African people. Think of all the things, Matsumal, that were happening in 1848. That's when the U.S., California was stealing Mexico, you know, stealing the land from Mexico. That's when the... Um, gold rush was. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. is like, damn, we're stealing this land right now. They were taking the land away. There was the U.S. government was um, funding white people, bringing in scalps of indigenous people. 1848 was the height of the trade in African human beings. And inside this country, it was also already illegal to go to Africa and import Africans. So there was the there was the breeding of African human beings. None of this is mentioned. There, were, there was the, you know, the power of life and death over Africans by white people. 
1848, 1840s is when Britain was imposing opium on the, on China. And the China, China was like, hell no, we're not taking your opium. We don't want to give you tea. And, you know, fighting the colonial domination of China. Look at all those things around the world. And none of that is mentioned in right. the communist uh, manifesto. So, and I, have you ever read that book, The Making of the English Working Class, E.P. Thompson? No. And it's a, it's a long book, extensive book, and methodologically, a lot of social and socialist historians look mm-hmm. towards the book produced, I want to say, in 1963, in the middle of another period of worldwide anti-colonial struggle. Yeah. And it says nothing about the actual working class that England was dominating. Nothing about the Caribbean. It talks right. about the goods from the Caribbean that are coming to factories in England right. that Irish people are working in and things in Liverpool and stuff like that. But it doesn't talk about the Caribbean in this book, The Making of the English Working Class, which is so uh, really, really underscores uh, what you're talking about, especially something that was very profound that you noted earlier in their loyalty to white North American and European uh, aristocracy. Why have we seen that kind of widespread and brutal violence carried out by regular white people against African and indigenous people? You say there is a material basis for it. What do you mean by that? Well, as African internationalism, Chairman Omalia Shatella make it really clear that all white people sit on the pedestal of the colonial domination of African, indigenous, and colonized people around the world. That is the basis for how we experience and see the world, even when we are impoverished, even white workers, because the white working class, like the white ruling class, was created by the assault on Africa. That's what created capitalism. That's what transformed, as the chairman lays out, so brilliantly is which transformed the feudalism of Europe into capitalist Europe. This is what brought wealth into Europe. This is what made it be that they didn't need serfs and peasants tied to the land anymore. They needed shipbuilders in Liverpool. They needed white workers to go into the mines for resources for the Industrial Revolution. They needed people to be in factories processing cotton into linen and, you know, sugar into rum and all of these various things that were the impetus for the industrialization and the development of the capitalist system. So this is what created not only the ruling class, it created the white working class. And it's not to say that white people don't experience oppression, but it is to say that when white people struggle against their oppression, we have historically struggled with our ruling class on the pedestal. So therefore, what we've called on is for a greater share of the power and wealth of the, the colonizer, or the imperialist ruling class, that we wanted to share it more. We wanted to have more rights as women. We wanted to have more resources as workers. We wanted to be able to carry out and be part of the state as the LGBTQ community, which has fought for to be the police, to be the Marines, 
and to uh, carry out the violence of the state. So, you know, I just think Chairman O'Malley Chatella in his book Vanguard and also an uneasy equilibrium, if anybody is listening that wants to read that, you know, he has a chapter on African internationalism that is just amazing. And the clarity that we get through looking at that, that we can see that even poor or oppressed white people sit on this pedestal. And we have never stood in solidarity with the movement for African liberation and recognized that the true working class of this country and the world is the African working class, the African working class. And therefore, we have only fought for our own interests, our own results, more money for us, more rights for us at the expense of African people and maintaining of the colonial domination. And this has led us to just incredibly brutal violence that is almost unspeakable. I mean, it wasn't just like you go up and shoot somebody. I mean, we have cut people up and burned them while they're still alive and cut the babies out of the bellies of indigenous and African women and hanged people. And one more thing I'd like to say about that, because I feel that white people are oh, well, we're the reasonable ones. We're the peaceful ones. We're, why are you so angry? We always want to try to work this out. And yet we are the greatest perpetrators of violence that this world has ever known. Thanks for that, Penny. So early on in the forming of America, regular white citizens played a key, if not primary role in the violent oppression of African people. In order to keep us powerless, and a source of wealth for white society overall. But today, the state itself plays the primary role. The police, the prisons, the courts. Let's talk about that. The role and function of the state and why we saw that transition from white civilian enforcers of colonialism to government-appointed armed operatives. Can you speak to that? Well, yes. I think that this is really important because, as I was saying before, if we look at history, white people continued to have just unlimited power of life and death over African people. So therefore, white people functioned as the state up into the 60s. And there were still attacks. There was still Emmett Till. There were still the uh, three people at the, uh, uh, the summer project, the Mississippi summer project that were killed with impunity. And when they were looking for their bodies, they found tons of other dead Africans that had been murdered. So it was the African Revolution, when the African Revolution became an anti-colonial struggle, especially with the struggle for black power around the mid-60s, that forced the government, the U.S. government, to say that all the violence had to be coordinated through the state, basically, is is what that means, and and forced this government to try or to make white people who commit violence against African people pay some kind of of price on that, which we know is, is still not real, not the same at all. But I think that is an important point, and that's what we're seeing right now is the certain faction of of white society that's identified with Trump in particular is of white people who want to return to the ability to carry out the power of the state 
over African and oppressed people. And they're fighting for that. And, and in many cases, it does. I mean, look what it was saying, that Kyle Rittenhouse was granted bail and he got out. Would that happen if, if they were African? Absolutely not. And look at Dylan Roof, who killed the people in Charleston, and who went into a church and murdered nine African people. And when the police got him, they took him out to get something to eat at McDonald's and didn't arrest him till the next morning. Would that happen to an African? Hell no. An African would have been murdered for something um, similar to that. So, you know, this is the role of the state. And as the chairman defines, and a lot of people might know if they've heard Dead Prez, Let's, Let's Get Free, where the chairman's talking about I think it's the song Please State, where he says that the, the state is the instrument and institution of violence that upholds the interest of the ruling class. And in this case, of the entire white colonial population. And so it makes you, the state can make you do something that you don't want to do because it is armed. And it's certainly the, the military the police, the prisons, the courts. This is how the U.S. enforces its power and maintains its power and upholds its rule over the colonized. And white people have been part and parcel of that, either through direct participation or through total complicity and voting in uh, laws that are clearly meant to maintain the colonial oppression, you know, of African people in this country and certainly around the world as well. So I think that that's, that's an important thing. And this is why the African People's Socialist Party is fighting for dual and contending power and the ability of African people not to fight against racism, the ideas in white people's heads, but to fight for power, to fight and build programs for dual power so that African people can have their own self-government, govern themselves, and have their own control over their economic and political lives and social systems that they live in. And I think that is so reasonable and so um, that makes so much sense. Because as the chairman has said, and written, it is not up to the African revolution to try to wait for the promise of white solidarity. That's why they created that white solidarity organization, the African People's Solidarity Committee, under their leadership with a mandate to go behind enemy lines and to win other white people and win reparations, not as a favor, not as a charity, but as the return of the stolen resources and the value of the stolen labor of African people back into the hands of the African revolution, fighting for African liberation, the liberation of Africa and the African people for and by the African working class in leadership. And that's just makes so much sense. There's no other way it can work. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, 
produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Penny Hess, author of Overturning the Culture of Violence and chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee. Now that Donald J. Trump appears to be on his way out of the white people's house, most African people and white progressives are rejoicing, despite the fact that Joseph Biden was author of the crime bill during William Clinton's presidency that put 100,000 more cops on the streets to kill and arrest us, despite the fact that Kamala Harris built her career as a prosecutor in California, working aggressively to incarcerate innumerable African people under discriminatory sentencing rules and then fighting to keep us locked up in the most inhumane conditions like at Pelican Bay Supermax in isolation for decades. This election has not promised anything for African people and will not change the conditions of life for African people. Can you talk about the functions of elections under colonialism? Well, I think that Chairman O'Malley Shatella has made it really clear and, and summed this up over and over again, especially in his report to the African nation that he holds every Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, that the elections are nothing but nonviolent contests between two sectors of the white ruling class. And in some cases, it gets violent, you know, like with Kennedy or, you know, there might be people that one sector assassinates, that's happened. But generally speaking, it's a nonviolent contest for the control of the state. And so it's not that there is anything different in the basic um, unity with what this system is, with parasitic capitalism, with the violence that this, this system is built on, Biden and Kamala Harris have no, no um, disunity with that at all. They're not going to dismantle the military. They're not going to dismantle the police. Kamala Harris was called herself the top cop in California. Um, that's what she did, and she was brutal and aggressive. And this is saying, as that to, to throw African people in prison in um, California, which had for many years the second highest prison population in the world, second only to the U.S. government itself. So there really isn't any difference. And a lot of white people have talked about the fascism of Trump. But the fact is that Fascism for white people is when, and the chairman has made this clear, when white people begin to experience the conditions of colonialism that African people experience all the time, regardless of who is in office. So again, the goals of the Uhuru movement, led by Chairman O'Malley Shatella, are for political power to make sure that racism or you know, the ideas in the heads of white people or the violence of white people or the violence even of the U.S. government state can ever hurt African people again, that they must have power, they must have the return of their resources, they must have the return of their land of Africa. And I have total solidarity and unity with that. That is what makes sense of this world. 
Thanks for that, Penny. Now, as we move towards the end of our interview, the question of reparations to African people was for the first time this year a part of the electoral debates across the U.S., including the early presidential debates. You've been an organizer and leader of the African People's Solidarity Committee since its founding in 1976. You've built a movement in the white community for reparations to African people, not just in words, but in practical work, raising resources to support the work of the Uhuru movement. We know that the African People's Socialist Party, under whose leadership you work, has been responsible for making reparations a household word. In 1982, the African People's Socialist Party organized the first World Tribunal on Reparations for Black People held in New York City and made reparations a key demand in popular campaigns for justice for African people throughout the decades. While building popular support in the African community for the reparations demand, the African People's Socialist Party also put reparations into practice by winning white people to voluntarily return the resources stolen from us. You were charged with that task. Can you talk about how you've been able to win white people to pay reparations? And what has been the result of that for you? Uhuru. Well, that has been the work of the African People's Solidarity Committee is to not only win white people to genuine solidarity with the liberation of African people, but to know that in practice, that means returning the stolen resources. And we have built the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, which has uh, members, an organization in about 150 cities in the United States. We're working to build this as well in, in Canada and, and Europe, and ultimately in Africa, and especially in Southern Africa, where the African People's Socialist Party is building. So, you know, this, is, this has been a really important thing to define reparations as a revolutionary demand. Again, not as a favor, not as charity, but the return of the stolen resources and the true redistribution of the wealth of the world into the hands of the African working class. So it's been a, an incredible movement and more and more white people are joining and taking the stand and wanting to do this. We're also called on to go to the white moneyed sector, the white ruling class, that as the chairman has said, has is in a very vulnerable place because of just the incredible resistance that is going on led by, by African people and African workers right now that is forcing sectors of the ruling class not only to to be insecure about their their place and knowing that they're sitting on billions and trillions of dollars of stolen resources, but also that they must pay reparations. So this is a, a very dynamic campaign that Uhuru Solidarity Movement is taking on right now. And it's called part of it is called Make Wall Street Pay Reparations. It's very, very exciting. So it's been great. You know, I think a lot of white people want to rectify the relationship they have to, to Africans and the people of the world and take a principled stand and be part of a world led by African people in which um, there is the world without oppressors and the oppressed and um, there is nobody living at the expense of anybody else. 
Thanks for that. Lastly, can our listeners find you online? And how can they get your book, Overturning the Culture of Violence? Also, if people would like to get involved in the reparations work of the African People's Solidarity Committee and the Hoover Solidarity Movement, how would they do that? Well, I would say that they can get the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, at theburningspearmarketplace.com. And that is on the Burning Spear um, website, burning spear, the, theburningspear.com. And also, if people want to get involved, they should, they can, we do have a website, African People's Solidarity Committee, but I would really urge people to go to uhurusolidarity.org and join so many fronts of the amazing work of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement that is led by Comrade Jesse Neville, very dynamic young force, who is the chair of of USM, Uhura Solidarity Movement, is just out there in so many different fronts. So I really want to salute USM and call on anybody to, again, go to uhurusolidarity.org and join this growing movement of white people building unity through reparations to African people. Uhuru. Thanks for that, Penny. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Penny Hess, author and chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, the organization founded and led by the African People's Socialist Party to win support and reparations from the white community for the African liberation struggle. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Aunt, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Penny Hess, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. The colonial virus is why I'm poor. The colonial virus keeps me at war. The colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. So we say, down with the colonial virus. 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 COVID-19, that's colonial virus. Ebola disease, that's colonial virus. HIV, that's colonial virus. Jovenel Moise, that's colonial virus. Domestic violence, that's colonial virus. Sexual violence, that's colonial virus. Horizontal violence, that's colonial virus. State violence, that's colonial violence.
virus. Gentrification, that's colonial virus. Mass incarceration, that's colonial virus. Deportation, that's colonial virus. The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black women, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black men, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black children, that's colonial virus. We can't take no more of this colonial virus. We say down with the colonial virus. 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 Down with the 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 down with the